0: Chao, What's a shot.
1: It's a bright start for Mkhitaryan, a debut goal for Aubameyang, and a 5-1 victory for Arsenal over Everton. And since then, nothing has happened. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Gunner. Yeah, I mean, it was just a brilliant, brilliant day at the Emirates. Um, we're, it was so good, we'll cover it again. I know we already did one podcast on it, but there hasn't been any football to cover since... Wait, wait, I'm getting something. Oh. Oh, no, there was a Derby. Yeah. All right, well, I guess we'll talk about that instead. Uh, it's a 1-0 defeat. A 1-0 defeat that, at the end, felt like a 1-1 draw that slipped through our fingers in a game that could have been 3-4-5, 6-0. So, a a weird one. A good first half, maybe good is overstating it. Certainly a disastrous second half, and then a disappointing final five minutes. A lot to unpack, a lot of decisions by the manager, a lot of performances worth uh, getting into. And we will do that with Tim. He's on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello. Hello. Paul's on Twitter at Pants. Hey, pause. Yeah, I guess. And then Clive's on Twitter at Clive Pafc. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Yeah, so I guess, Tim, just to delay having to talk about the football (coughs) and issues surrounding (laughs) the club generally, let's talk about the match day itself. It's a unique match because Mm. it's the first Derby, uh, away Derby, so to speak, at Wembley, a place we've been very happy going to, that you've had some great days out in the last few seasons, and Mm. it must have been different. So both in terms of, the getting in and out of the stadium experience and the atmosphere inside how would you say this differed from the old days at uh Scheidhart lane
2: yeah it was it was really different so beforehand it was just really different because going to wembley uh a ground I you know i'm very very familiar with and um, very recently as well thankfully um it was just very very weird going there as an away fan in february when it's dark and cold and raining and you can't wear your colors which is you know in stark contrast to the days out we've had at Wembley recently um and you know yeah going to going to a ground that you're familiar with in totally different circumstances is is very very odd um actually and not not really kind of knowing the life of the land but not for a game like this because for a, an away north london derby you kind of you have your escape route planned and you have your routines planned so that you you know run into as few tottenham fans as you can possibly manage but um, that's much more difficult in like a big cavernous stadium like Wembley that's really in the middle of nowhere, and there's ninety thousand people there um compared to like White Hart Lane, which is in the middle of like you know uh, a load of houses and on a big high road, uh, you know very, very urban stadium. so so that was very strange, kind of going somewhere really familiar, but in a really unfamiliar scenario, but also kind of inside. Um, it you know wasn't like needless to say it wasn't like White Hart Lane at all like White Hart Lane it's really on top they're quite steep stands but they're really on top of the pitch at White Hart Lane all the corners are closed so you know everything stays in um, and it's you know it it can be quite intimidating Wembley wasn't like that at all um, it was particularly in the first half it was really really quiet it was really quiet inside it felt. You know, not like a friendly so much, but it kind—it felt very, very diluted. And um, you know, the Arsenal fans. The, there was a song that went up in the first half: um, uh, "Old Tottenham Hotspur, twice as many fans, and you still don't sing," um, which went up for most of the first half. It was really, really quiet. Obviously, in the second half, when they kicked it up a notch, um, it got a bit noisier mm-hmm. and a bit more tense. But it, it was one of the quieter, like North London derbies. I've I've been to it It was generally it was very very surreal and I've never sat in the lower tier at the new Wembley either I've always gone upstairs so this was the first time since Wembley was renovated I've been downstairs I I didn't really like the view that much but that's by the by but yeah all, all in all it was quite surreal getting out was really really easy because when you come out at Tottenham you've got you've got basically an alleyway where the away fans come out and it's very easy for tottenham fans to come and corner you um, and kind of pen you in and throw bottles at you and stuff wembley is different because everything is you know it's in the middle of nowhere all the kind of walkways are really really wide and plus it was pouring down with rain um so nobody everyone was moving pretty quickly and i have to be 100 percent honest when lacazette missed that chance that's when i left Um, So I left about probably about a minute before the end, which might have made things easier. But Mm -hmm. yeah, generally, um, quite a surreal experience for a North London derby, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've written at length about the derby, and I I believe you wrote an article a couple seasons back, or maybe one season back, talking about how, as you've gotten older, it's a fixture you've actually started to hate, and that that sort of febrile Mm. atmosphere outside the ground, and the the sense of danger Mm. and doom and and physical anxiety no longer really appeals to you, not that 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 sounds like something that would ever appeal to you, but in the yeah, absence yeah. of it this time, did you find yourself missing it, or were you happy for the change? Um,
2: I, I was probably slightly happy for the change. Uh, yeah, it, it was just really weird because I didn't know what to expect. You know, usually like um, White Hart Lane, you've you've got all your routes planned and your routines planned. But for here, it was like we don't know what's happening when we get out. We'd heard conflicting reports about the the Arsenal fans getting kept in afterwards, and then it was like, no, no, there won't be. <laughs> It's the first away derby I've ever been to, and not not seen any trouble whatsoever. Um, so I mean that you know that I think that says quite a bit for it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I you know I I I think I probably preferred this slightly, just particularly because we lost and it didn't feel like you know I think the attendance was eighty three thousand, so there were eighty thousand Spurs fans there. It didn't feel like eighty thousand hardcore dying in the wall spurs fans you know there were probably about you know good thirty, forty thousand who were you know this made their weekend but i kind of got the impression you you could tell that the atmosphere had been diluted you know by people who oh i can get a ticket for a north london derby finally i might see what this is all about and you know if not neutrals but you know people who, who don't like live and die by by this football match and uh yeah i i, I found it slightly welcome actually just yeah. in terms of it made getting out both safer and i didn't feel like i had that impending like you know when you lose up heart lane is every single person is on their seats every single person is looking at the away end and gesturing and yeah and so you feel everyone's eyes on you when you're walking out i didn't feel like that this time to be honest
1: well i guess that's good look we made it seven minutes i did the best i could we got to talk about the football. I'm really sorry. I, I mean, that was all I could think to fill time with. So, Tim, we really appreciate your sacrifice taking one for the team there. But, um, uh, Clive, I'll come to you next, and then, Paul, I'll give you the layup softball uh, team-positive Gooner question that will uh, let, let you cover all the silver linings to the cloud. But, Perfect. Like, yeah, yeah. there you go. Uh, Clive, we started, in, in my opinion, in what looked like a 4-1-4-1, 4-1, but my opinion is worth, you know, well, barely the oxygen that's used to produce it. So I want to get your opinion of – how we set up, who we put out there, and why we didn't do exactly what we did in the reverse fixture when we beat them 2-0 at home.
3: I don't know why we didn't play like we did in the home game because in the home game we were very aggressive, we were very forceful. Oh. And we took the game away from them, we made them feel uncomfortable, we moved the ball quickly, and we executed in a, with a one-two punch and um, that left them bereft of any sort of creativity to come back. Right, So... That was the whole game. So I was really hopeful we'd have a similar game plan. I was really hopeful that we would cover the pitch in the same way. And I just thought we'd try to play in areas where they don't like to play. But what we did was we went 4 four one, four one out of possession. I totally agree on it. That's the way we went. And so, in my mind, we played the Chelsea away game plan. And the Chelsea away game plan had Iwobi, Welbeck, I think Lacazette played up front, Sanchez and Urzel were tucked away in the stands or not available. And we had a very workman-like team and we put in a very workman-like performance. This time we tried a similar game plan with, with Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan and Urzel playing. And, and in my opinion, they weren't quite as hard-working off the ball, um, not quite as focused defensively and nor would we expect them to be. But more importantly, they were slightly inefficient when we had the ball. Um, we spoke earlier about the opportunities that we had on the break that were really, really important opportunities. And I think Wenger was hopeful that Spurs would make a mistake and that we would have the quality above and beyond Iwobi and Welbeck to really execute. And, and we didn't. And I think it was really important for us to score first. And um, obviously we had the Young offside goal where his, where his nose is offside and that was the end of that. And... Um, but basically, I was really disappointed about the inefficiency we had on the break, and we sort of we were we were in the game, but we weren't controlling the game. But they weren't controlling us, and it did feel like I didn't go to the game, but it did feel like the Spurs crowd were quiet. They were nervous. They were wondering what what Arsenal would show up. So everyone had watched the Everton game and seen us looking more like Arsenal, and I think it made them nervous. And we had the opportunity. To, to really do them in the first 50 minutes and I felt we didn't quite commit to a more offensive aggressive game plan we tried to Chelsea way game plan with players that really are suited to be more aggressive offensively rather than sitting in a in a low block 4141 defensively and and that was a shame and uh, I think we we had a plan for nil nil mm-hmm. and but I don't think we had a plan for 1-0 down, which I'm sure we'll get onto later on. Yeah. We didn't have a plan for the next phase. We just played for a 0-0 nil nil draw. And in my mind, without being too damning, given where we are as a club, where we've been over the last 10 years, the resources, the Champions League money, the day we walk out to a pitch with Spurs and play for a draw is a, is a real sad day for me.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it, it certainly looked like that. Now, I will say that we did create some, not chances because we didn't shoot at all in the first half, but chances to create chances, so to speak. The the thing that was interesting to me is with Ozil and Mkhitaryan so rooted to their sort of wide positions, um, you know, I, I, I kind of understand the thought process because we were successful at home hitting it into those wide, long balls wide, and then, you know, trying to get it up the pitch that way and avoid their press, but... We just didn't seem to utilize that strategy to the best possible effect. And, Paul, what I think is a great opportunity for you to discuss is what went right in the first half. I mean, to me, I actually thought the level of play overall in the first half was just kind of poor. I mean, they created one pretty clear chance, the Kane header, that he headed over when he probably should have done better. What I noticed, though, in the first half is that we were sloppy with the ball that could have led to a chance, and they were sloppy – with the ball in the final third when we weren't putting them under enough pressure and we didn't get that right in the second half. And they did is essentially what I thought being the difference in the game. But as far as what went right for us in the first half, what do you think we did well that at least dramatically was an improvement on what we produced in the second half?
4: Well, I mean, it was clearly the old game of two halves. And I think um, Fenger had some comments before the game. He talked about it being a big pitch to, um, but I guess he had in mind this isn't your your normal NLD away at White Hart Lane, and that changes things. So uh, he, he saw a very wide pitch to cover and a team that will move the ball very well to stretch you. And, you know, I kind of understand wh- why he went with the back four um given that typically firstly we haven't exactly been watertight with the back three recently um secondly we've typically had ramsey in the middle um to bring his energy and work rate for the two-man midfield
1: do you, do you um, think the absence of ramsey informed his decision in terms of going with that more like a four-one-four-one as opposed to just using the shaka ramsey partnership and going straight to the back three
4: yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what you guys think if it was kind of a clue we were going this way. I guess my guess is he was probably going this way anyway. Uh, but but if he had been thinking of a back three and he lost Ramsey, that that might make him very nervous for the work that that group needs to do. Um, uh, here's what. I, here's why I think he really went this way. He's got Obama a, a Yang and Mkhitaryan joining in the team. He's decided he wants to play them up front. Because, as we've said, he thinks we'll have some chances to get some goals on a big pitch and get the first goal. And that's clearly the plan. Um, And those guys haven't played in a 3-4-3. And what's more, he wants the support behind them so that we're not just kind of popping the ball out with the long diagonal, trying to hit Mkhitaryan on the break kind of thing. We're actually giving them some support from midfield, and, and to me it was very much a three-man midfield. Yes, in possession, El Elneny was a little deeper, but basically we had three men to cover three men, and that's why I think the quality felt a little low in the first half, because we were basically cancelling each other out, and it worked. But the problem with the second half, as we saw against Liverpool, uh, with the Liverpool-Spurs game, and this second half, is their energy levels were significantly higher after the break. Their fitness model uh, as I think we've heard, and I was I read some article recently that was very good on it. You know, this is there's the second half of the season is when their fitness model is built for, and the second half of the game, and you could see that utterly against Liverpool, and if you watch this game. Uh, if you go go back and just watch the first 5 minutes of the second half you see two different energy levels suddenly dembele is coming to life suddenly jack is jogging kind of pacing himself for 45 minutes and but they're playing like they only have 5 minutes to win the game or 10 minutes to win the game from from the second half just different intensity levels dembele runs that midfield um for leading up to that goal just uh,
1: I mean, he he beat, bossed it f- for most of the game, I felt. We didn't have anyone who could he, match his physicality on the ball. I mean, he looked to I me the exact right. kind of midfielder that we just don't have in the squad and have been desperately crying out for.
4: Yeah, but we did. While well, I agree he had a great game all the way through, we did pretty much cancel him in the first half. Even Jack matched him kind of physically you'll see it in the first five ten ten minutes of the game he's literally barging into him bumping into him well he couldn't do that for 90 minutes Uh, and i think that was the big difference between the two halves Our we came out pacing ourselves in the second half i'm sure that wasn't the plan but that was what was going on and they come out uh full bore full batteries and they blew us away for ten minutes, and then of course they kind of settle a little bit. Maybe their batteries go down a little bit. Maybe they begin to settle into just controlling the game. But I think it's it's ultimately a game of two. This is a classic game of two halves because the the start of the two games, two halves were so different. And but on the other hand, the the manager's tactic of getting the first goal and providing an attacking platform for the front three, you could see that not only did we have some chances that could have been killer had we strung the balls together, um, had we not scored we would have got corners, we would have had play in their final thirds. You know, the battle balance of that cha- game changes in the first half if we can only hold on to the ball and string string a counter together and get up the other end and I think that's you could have had a, a parallel universe where that was a pretty reasonable game plan. We got the first goal, and the second half we could manage our energy levels. But I don't think we were ever... I think it's naive to think that if this went the full 90 minutes, uh, mano a mano, that we were going to match them for physicality levels given some of our issues, uh, you know, Obama, Yang, Mkhitaryan, Jack, uh, etc., in terms of fitness, kashelny um, they're just not at the physical level that Spurs are, for good or bad.
1: Yeah, and I mean, by the way, you know, that Swansea second half it was yeah. equally craptastic. I, 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 you just wonder if there is a problem physically right now and, and where that comes from. And I certainly think that's where you miss the engine of someone like a Ramsey, obviously. But, Paul, just really quickly before we come back to you, Tim, as far as it being a close-run thing, I mean, look, it was three to point six on xg depending on what model you look at and so i mean that gives you yeah. some sense of where the balance of the scoring opportunities came from but in the first half there were two key moments one maybe more than two but two that stand out for me one is the the through ball opportunity the the counter opportunity where Mikatarian and obamiang are two on one running into the spurs half and ozil kind of splits the difference and plays it to the defender who's standing between them. If he finds any of the space in behind them, you've got Mkhitaryan and Aubameyang running in on goal, and you certainly like the chance for that to be converted. But the really, really big one, of course, is the marginal offsides call on Aubameyang. When Wilshire yeah. plays just a sensational ball to find Aubameyang playing off the shoulder of the last defender, the exact kind of run and and ball that you need to take advantage of Aubameyang's movement and his his speed. And you trust his finishing there, at least you think, to probably put that away. Now, I mean, I don't want to debate whether it's offside or not. I think it probably isn't. You know, we didn't get the call, so it doesn't really matter. But I think there's an interesting point here. In 7 a.m. kickoff, who writes the by-the-numbers section for Arsblog, pointed something out that I think is really interesting. Spurs have fallen behind 10 times this season. They've, they've conceded the first goal 10 times. In those games, they have taken six points, and they have no wins. Okay? So six draws, four losses. The 10 times they've conceded the first goal. In these 16 games where they have scored first, they have 46 points and no losses. So scoring first against Spurs is as big a predictor of the outcome of the match as you'll find and yeah. the fact that we did not take advantage of our positive play in that half and in, indeed maybe we're robbed by the referees and I, again i know that he just got an offside goal out of the game before um and i joked you know could we give that one back the fifth goal back against everton and have it against spurs but it might have changed the game i mean for you were those the two moments where we had the chance one where we didn't find the quality and one where the referee maybe stole it from us to have possibly turned this game a different direction
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, overall, I would have taken that kind of refereeing performance, given what I feared for an NLD. I think he did a very creditable job. Uh, But on an offside like that, the whole point is that when you're level, and let's face it, there's no such thing as level. You're a millimeter one way or the other, that the attacker gets the advantage. And that was pretty damn close to... To level now, I I never spend too much emotional energy on offsides when they're close because I just put them down as you win some, you lose them. Uh, unlike a lot of other refereeing decisions, which which I could get worked up about, I you know that's just a flip of a coin if it goes for you or against you. But it was critical, um, and I actually think it, from our standpoint, uh, you, there aren't a lot of shots to measure as you mentioned, but there's a whole bunch of offsides.
1: S- Many oh, of gosh. them were We, we were like six times in the match. Um, fucking now, Lacazette, yeah, Lacazette comes Z. on. Yeah. And we'll, we'll pulls come to that. his we'll fucking
4: socks off. Yeah. You know, he he comes on with 30 minutes to go. He knows he's only get, going to get three or four looks at the goal. And that's literally what he got. And in one of them, he was in a his first base, basic moment in the game. He's bent over, pulling up his socks while. Sta- standing he's standing offside. Yeah. yeah and he, yeah. he's got the whole fucking midfield uh, ahead of him. All he had to do was time it, and he's off. And, uh, you know, t- talking about whether his head was in the game, I think we saw a few well, other we'll moments. will come to because
1: I, th- I think that's yeah. an important section. But, but yeah, I, I but, mean, I But agree. I would
4: say there were five moments where if we have got our – there's, there's one with, uh Obama Yang laid on in the game, 80 something minute, which is as good an opportunity as any. But he's just, he is offside, but he's just a fraction offside. If we'd got, gotten a few of those right, and maybe that's just the synchronicity of having played with each other, this could have been a different game. But, I mean, you can't take anything away from Spurs. They were clear, they're clearly the stronger team at the moment.
1: Well. Um, since since yeah. Scott won't be here, um, he can't make it today. I'll, I'll do the Scott part real quick. Coming from 7 a.m. kickoffs, uh, excellent by the numbers column again. The six big chances created by Tottenham uh, were the worst for us this season in terms of big chances allowed. The um, nine shots in prime that Tottenham took were the high for them this season and the worst for us this season. So, I mean, when we capitulated, we really capitulated in this one. So, Tim, I mean— we we've covered the positives. I mean, is there any? Do you want to put any kind of last thoughts into how we started the match, how we set up? I, I don't want to just sort of freeze you out of that, since you got to talk no. about the thrilling, you know, Wembley experience. <laughs> so, I mean, any anything real quick about the the way we started the match or or those key moments in the first forty five?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, what Arsen wenger gets angry about is 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 quite revealing because I think it tells you what. Um, was said between him and the players. And the thing that seemed to irk him the most was, you know, that quote, we missed uh, opportunities on the counter that were not acceptable at this level. And uh, that's quite that's unusually strong for him um, on his own players. And what that tells me is that that's what they've been working on all week and that that was the tenet of the game plan to counter-attack. And to be fair, I thought every time, it didn't happen often enough, Every time we were in the last 30 yards of the pitch, I thought we looked dangerous. I thought Tottenham looked open at the back because, you know, the the obvious, they they push up on you so hard and so high. But if you break that press, they're in trouble. And uh, the the few times we were actually able to manoeuvre the ball into the final third, we looked dangerous every time. Even in the second half, it just happened even less in the second half. And that, that tells me that that was the game plan um, to counter them. That's what they worked on. And that tells me that Arsene Wenger thinks that um, that wasn't an incorrect way to go. Um, but he felt that the execution wasn't there. Um, and another fairly revealing quote. I, I've not seen this myself, but someone tweeted, I think you and me today, Elliot, and, and said that there was something he said in the post-match conference about you know how tottenham kicked the intensity up in the second half and he said something like you know not all of our players can do that and uh, I I felt that was quite pointed
3: mm, I did um, hear that mm.
2: yeah yeah and that that I mean that to me I, this game to me just shows you that like so many of arsenal's problems are in midfield in terms of progressing the ball up the pitch and this to me looked like the first time that Jack Wilshire really looked quite lost. I, th- I thought this game was. Um, I thought the level of someone like Dembele, who I completely agree, is. I-, I tweeted this about a year, well, six months to a year ago. I said, like, if I could take one player off Tottenham, it would be Dembele, because um, I-, I think you're right. He's exactly the sort of player we miss. Like, obviously, Kane is brilliant, but, you know, we've got some good strikers. Um, Ali's, you know, a good player, but we've got Ramsey. Like, Dembele just looks like exactly the missing piece of our midfield puzzle. And I I thought that Jack, you know, Jack wasn't really good enough um, to take him on um, his own game, particularly in the second half. And I I felt that that was quite pointed. And not, you know, not just at Jack, because he said we've got some players that can't. and you know he took Elneny off and uh, I think I think the thing is with Elneny he's like he performs well in his own game but he doesn't necessarily help the team to play better so I think that because he's so cautious Arsenal get pushed back quite easily when Elneny's is in midfield he's almost like the anti Ramsey whereas Ramsey is very brave and very bold high risk high reward I'm going to go and stand you know in your like on the edge of the centre circle and I'm going to expect the ball and I'm going to push you backwards. So, And then he's like the polar opposite. He ends up basically on the edge of the area, which, you know, I'm not criticising him for that per se. Um, But yeah, I mean, to me, once Tottenham kicked up that intensity, we just weren't able to cope. And the amount of times I was was just doing my nut in that first 15 minutes of the half where every time there was a throw-in, our players went dead they wanted that two to three seconds off and tottenham weren't giving it to us they were taking the throw-ins quickly they were taking the free kicks quickly and our players just want they wanted a breather um and tottenham wouldn't let them have it and it didn't matter how many times tottenham did it arsenal constantly just went cold um as soon as the ball was dead and with tottenham they don't they don't leave the ball dead very long and um we, it was frustrating. We didn't seem to learn that lesson. But from what Wenger said in the post-match press conference, it's it's not so much that they didn't learn the lesson; they're just not capable of playing
1: at that intensity. Um, but it's, it's, it's you know. But it's off the off the ball is our problem everywhere, isn't it, Tim? I mean, I just yeah. I feel like we've been talking about how poor we are off the ball for ages, and I think we might be the worst yeah. off the ball team in the league at some level. I mean, you know, you see this this stat that we lead the Premier League in goals conceded from errors. Errors don't mm. necessarily mean you have to concede a goal if you're switched on, right? I mean, the yeah, the yeah. goal that Shaka gifts to uh, – what's his ridiculous – Klukas, right? That's mm. an – you know the one I'm talking about in the yeah. in the Swansea. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, you, you don't have to give up that goal. Yes, Ozil loses the ball under pressure in our own half, but if Shaka's switched on, we don't concede there. And I, I just yeah. think there's so many examples of that. The Kane goal – it's a, is a good goal, and sure, Koscielny maybe should do better, but for me, that is entirely down to allowing a professional footballer 25 yards from your goal to tee up the cross he wants to, to serve up under no mm. pressure. I mean, it's like a free mm. kick without a wall. It, it, you cannot allow that, and I actually think in the first half, we didn't put enough pressure on them in in, in our defensive third when they had the ball. We, we, we dropped off too much but they just didn't and pick the ball and there's the off.
4: cross they banged into Harry Kane like minutes after his goal that could have been another yeah. goal and it was from the right wing it was basically the same play they
1: headed straight at check yeah and i mean yeah. so and there were a lot of those and and so you know and I, I i've totally cut you off on this this restart point but i think it goes beyond just restarts i think it's off the ball period right mm. just that and to, so my yeah, question definitely. to you though is technical skill is down to the individual players every single player in football has the capability to be switched on and aware of space so to you is that the most pointed example of where the coaching is letting us down
2: yeah definitely because they just they don't look prepared um basically and they 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 constantly look surprised that, that was the thing that got me you know spurs took there was a period where spurs took like three free quick free kicks in a row and they, the whole thing can't have been more than two minutes apart, and then they all stand around looking at each other like, "Why does this keep happening?" And it's like, it, "Well, because it keeps working, that's why." And um, and I, I I get it, right? Spurs look. Spurs have comfortably beaten United, Liverpool, and Real Madrid at home. When they turn it up like that, they are difficult to live with. I get that. I really get that. But
1: I have an answer for that. It was so though.
2: stark, though. It was so stark. How they were able to up that intensity and we, we just could not live with it. Like, it, like I, d- I don't think, you know, the Arsenal players are not trying or I, I think, you know, they want to do a good job. But the thing is, what's, what Spurs have showed in that second half was almost, almost subconscious. And it just comes from drilling your team again and again and again and again. Quick free kick, quick throw in, pass the ball quickly, press them, you know, just drilling that message in till it becomes your instinct. instinct. And that that's what Arsenal players haven't quite got. They've got that, like, they go out, they maybe have a bit of a plan, they want to do well, but it's not like muscle memory. It's not instinct. It's just, you know, it doesn't feel like they have that... It, it, I don't know. It, they feel... They look a bit like me at work in that I want to do a good job, but, like, you know there are quite a lot of days where I think I- I'm going to put like 80% in today because I well, can't be asked.
1: Well, yeah, and look.
2: And, I- and, you know, like we all do that, right? But like elite level sportsmen shouldn't really be doing that. And, and to me that just speaks to the preparation.
1: I, I, I put in at most 20% into my job at any given time, <laughs> including this podcast for what it's worth. But like, look, I totally agree with you. I just think that – You know, you mentioned teams they've beaten, they're big, big clubs. And the problem is, right, I think the best way to beat a team like Spurs or Liverpool that have dynamic attackers that are weak at the back from a personnel standpoint and love to press you is to play like a small club, is rope-a-dope. Let them on you, counterattack. Let them on you, counterattack. They can't defend in their half in space, and that's where they're vulnerable. You're not going to play your way through them, and big clubs that want to impose themselves on them play into Spurs' strength. And we, you know, as a big club who have really not a very good midfield, we certainly aren't going to be able to impose ourselves on them. What's scary, Tim, is how far we've fallen, because I remember when we beat Barcelona, that amazing Barcelona team at the Emirates, the night the Emirates was sort of christened, right? What a disciplined off-the-ball performance it was. You know, the two le- when we played Barcelona those multiple times in a row in the, in the CL, I know, I know we lost in, in, in one case at, at the New Camp, we lost heavily, but... For the most part, we did really well off the ball back then. We could concentrate and mm. focus and kept our shape. And, and maybe it's just the prize was big enough that we wanted it enough to focus. I don't know. But something has changed. All the
2: manager... Or the manager absolutely knew that he could not get away with not doing it against yeah, Barca.
1: M- maybe so that's they it. they did
2: give it the proper focus.
1: Yeah, where to be, how to cut off passing lanes, how to stay compact, where the danger areas were, how to, how to keep yourself from getting hurt. And that message was not here because we gave them chance, a chance, and chance, and chance to deliver balls into the box under very little pressure. We tried to play in spaces we shouldn't be trying to play. And that's just basic preparation. Now... I'll bring it over to you, Clive, with a midfield question, but I do want to come to Jack's defense, and I think this speaks to really why the game changed a lot. Yep, me too. Wilshire led us in tackles, attempted, tackles failed, the times he was fouled, the dribbles he attempted, the successful dribbles, and he had the pass of the game to Aubameyang that very easily could have been a 1-0 lead. I thought he disappeared in the second half, largely. Um, And, you know, he his his just physical level dropped and that became a big problem for us. Clive, it's it's tough. I mean, Jack Shaka completed ninety four percent of his passes. Um Jack Wilshire had yeah. those dribbles and those tackles and you look around and El Nenny was fairly tidy in the you know mid mid eighties pass completion. And yet it seemed so obvious watching the game that central midfield is where we were lacking and where we could not compete. So for you, how do you verbalize or explain exactly what was missing from our central midfield and why it's such a liability. I
3: think sometimes when you watch a game, we all watch our team and we love our team and we look at individuals and we absorb ourselves as individuals and we look at how they perform. But sometimes you need to watch the other team. And I I do this a lot. And and what the other team are doing. And Tim's absolutely right. All this This started from many years ago. All teams do to beat us now is that they speed up. They speed up what they're doing, they they up the intensity and they know that we can't keep up. So that tells you what we lack. Right? So f- forget the names. We we're we're adults here. We're smart football watchers, right? El Nenny's a tidy speak
1: for football. your damn self. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, El Neni's a tidy footballer, right? He works very hard, he's very met- metronomic, he's one paced and he always passes to the nearest shirt. What does that do? That attracts attention, that attracts the press. Because everyone can read his next movement. Not good for Spurs that love switch on off the ball and love pressing the mistake. Right? So, and then he actually, statistically, did quite well. Did he convince you? No way. No, of course right? not. <laughs> Jack Wilshire, right? So <laughs> a little bit of defence for Jack, right? And what I like about him is that he looks at the game from a team perspective. He could see that Dembele was the man. The fact he's only three foot two, he put himself next to him. He tried to compete with him. Dembele's got a lovely sway. He sways laterally and he runs the ball into wide areas and he passes the ball. But basically what he does is he dominates by a little shimmy. He's got the El Cazola shimmy, moves off the spot. Shimmy's both made and he drives and he pops it. When he was younger, he would drive 15, 20 yards. (laughs) So, but who went to go and face him up? Was it Shaka or was it Jack? It was Jack. So, your eyes are telling you, Jack got, he got rumbled. Well, Jack got rumbled because he can't physically cope with Dembele. What was Shaka doing? He's a six-footer in our team. He's the one that should have connected himself to Dembele. Dyer was a dead body doing nothing, just standing still waiting for someone to kick. So, you had nothing else to do but try to get in there and help Jack control the midfield. Not look for safe passes to stuff your stat sheet. I I, I really got disappointed in him. And this is why I always look at players. I look at their their ethic, their work ethic, their team ethic. Someone who thinks team first, I said it before, team first, teammate, then then yourself. With Shaka, I think he thinks about himself far too much for me. And I think he's a hard-working player, but rather than go and compete with their danger man, He took an easier option. And Jack, the one that's not really built for that, he said, You know what? I need to help our team here. I'm going to go and connect myself to somebody that I can barely hang on to. Right? And so, and Shaka again, tidy player with time, with space, room to get his head up, very good passer, very good distributor, knows what he can do. We all know what he can't do. But let's be honest about this. This is a quality issue. We have a set of midfielders. That are out-intensed at the top level, away from home, and it's happened. Well, we've only won I mean, three I mean, games away from home Is it a physical issue?
1: Is it, is it a technical issue? This, is it this, a coaching is issue? A, I mean, surely this is at not coaching.
3: This is a this is a selection issue. This is the player types we have. We have midfield players that can't sprint. Come on, you saw it.
1: Well, none, we none of the, I mean, slow. none of them can run.
3: Yeah. We look slow. We look slow, unathletic. We don't look dynamic. So how do you beat them? By making yourselves dynamic, by doing things faster, by dropping Ali and Ericsson into that space, by pulling their fullbacks higher... Dyer sits there and covers all the mistakes and he's a rubbish player, but for them he's perfect because he gives them structure. He breaks counterattacks and he's an ugly footballer, but he has a specific role and no one questions his technique because he's not. no one's interested in it. He's like a poor defender defending him in front of the back four, but he's very strong and very physical. And so basically we were out intense. We were out intense about half an hour in that game. And in that half an hour, they could have had four goals quite easily because we didn't have a plan at one nil down and that was shown by the substitutions which were shocking the substitutions were they were shocking they were not planned they were panicked they didn't look prepared we had no in-game scenario one nil down yeah. we planned everything for nil nil and how long we could keep it and hopefully one nil up but the third scenario one nil down with a 50 i just can't get over the fact we have higher quality forwards and we had no idea to to do how to deploy them and so for me and i'm i know if there, i know people like ramsey and obviously players that are that don't play have suddenly become Better, and I think Ramsey would have suited that day more than maybe an El any for example, or a Shaka. I think we we definitely missed him. But let's be honest, he's not he's not a sprinter neither. He can be out intense. He's got issues with his physicality. He's got issues with his fitness, and so we need a complete different player type in there to to go where the modern game is going. Just look around you. The players that are really dominating the league have technical dynamism or physical dynamism. I'm afraid we are very metronomic and very one pace, and we could be out-intensed. And that is the way to be Arsenal. In the middle third, and I'm afraid one of our centre-backs is just losing his dominance. And we were done straight down the gut. The two centre backs and the three in midfield. The three in midfield yeah. had few scared, sorry, mate, a few fleeting moments, but we were dominating that area. Until we change that, this team will not reach the levels it should
1: reach. Other than that, though, I mean, how do you feel it went? <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that that look, that covers it. And I, I don't disagree with a word of it. I, I will say that, you know, I, I think where I come across, uh, come off a little differently about coaching and, and tactics, and you know, I I think there is enough talent in the attacking part of the pitch that if you can sit back and stay compact and stay intense and switched on and play long, you can beat Spurs. I mean, look, we beat them two nil at the Emirates, and it wasn't a particularly tough game for us because we had a game plan, we stuck to it, and we were. You know, we were switched on and I, I just we don't were aggressive. know Well, we were. We
3: were aggressive. But this and is... we imposed ourselves on them. In this game, we were meek, we were passive, and Why? we allowed them Why? to impose their game on us. And that, for me, is something you can control. I agree with you. We can control our approach to the game of football. Now, the results and things that happen in the game we all, we, if we all knew, we'd all be millionaires. We'd all have we'd all have the, all the bets in our back pocket.
1: You mean even, even more can, than we are con- now,
3: right? Exactly. Right, but yeah. you can control your approach. Mm-hmm. And on the day, we didn't quite control – we didn't quite impose okay. our game plan on them. And you know what? They were there for the taking in the first half. They were nervous about us, and we encouraged them by being so passive.
1: Well, so so let's come to the period where it really fell apart, Paul. And I guess my question to you is – what do you think went wrong where after they got the goal it was like a snowball rolling downhill. I mean, we looked like we couldn't recover and I thought Arsblog did his typical brilliant job covering the game in his post today and um we're recording this on Sunday the day after and you know, he just talked about how once it started bleeding, the blood just started gushing and we didn't know how to how to stop the wound. I mean, there does seem to be a frailty about this team when things start to go wrong for it. See also the Swansea game just a couple weeks ago. Do you have any particular insight or an, an attempt at insight into what you feel went wrong when the tide started to turn and they just started to create chance after chance after chance?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I feel it was all part of one of the same. If you accept, accept the premise that their physical levels, that they took it to a level we couldn't match, and I think we've all kind of bought into that over the last few minutes talking about it, they had no reason to back off. Uh, conversely we started pushing forward without really having earned the right it's not like we decided we'd begun to to find each other to find the the synchronicity in the team we just pushed forward so we got even more stretched but we still weren't matching their physical level so they had 15 20 minutes where they used that against us and they looked even more dominant they became now as we went long, as we went more direct, we were actually beginning to get some chances, but they weren't nearly as good as their chances. I mean, they would pick the ball up on the counter, and just uh, run it down the pitch. And again, their athleticism meant they were going past our players, galloping into space. So to me, it was all—it just allowed them to to stretch the gap between us and them when the the game opened up. their their physicality became more to the fore. There was more space to run into. They could be more decisive on the counter than we could. And so I think it just magnified the problem. Uh, We made some changes. I think they sat back a little bit, uh, but it also maybe energized us a little bit for a last push. Um, And the gap narrowed and we were arguably, we were in, in line to maybe pull one back. Uh, and as they'd only scored one themselves, uh, this could have been could have gone out 1-1, which would have been very unfair yeah. to them.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely go, but, come come on to the final period. But I, I mean, yeah. in terms of that period where it was all going wrong, one thing that did go right for us, I mean, Czech made a lot of saves, and I, I have to say, I, I understand why people are frustrated with him and ready for us to move on, and I think his time is coming to an end. But he has a lot of games like this where he bails us out and makes a bunch of saves over a period where we're just reeling, and I don't know that he gets the credit for the stuff he's doing that saves our ass as much as he gets the blame for the mistakes he makes that cost us which are, are not that frequent. Now that's yeah. the life of a goalkeeper. I think I that's really well that. said. Yeah. I, I think
4: people will probably, many people go away from this game remembering the couple of, couple of kind of screw-ups where you can see obviously he's a bit rattled confidence-wise but I don't think in general it didn't in this game and it hasn't in other games affected his, the quality of the saves he's made in general but it obviously shows it's getting to him, the whole I mean, he situation. he big saves.
1: Well, so let me give you one more positive to discuss because we're all trying to stay on hashtag brand here. So yeah. um, I, I think in a match that went this poorly for large stretches of it and the result was poor, it's easy to pile on everyone. One player who nobody likes because he's into fashion and won't cut his hair is Hector Bellerin, but he was he was our best player on the day, I thought. How impressed were you with his ability to produce a great performance performance uh, when surrounded by players who weren't necessarily matching his level.
4: Yeah, look, I think he did great. I think he kept uh, Davies really quiet. He had some Son, really good really play quiet. against Son.
1: Yeah. I mean, Son tried to take yeah. him on one-on-one and he made a number of crucial blocks on attempted crosses yeah. and, and attempts to get by him early in the game.
4: Defensively, it was one of his strongest games to the point where I think they just concluded they, they should give up trying to beat, beat us on that side. And he
1: had no now, help, no help. He was totally isolated on that side.
4: Yeah. The, the but you do see a little bit in his game. I mean, everybody struggled to play the ball out, and that was the one part of his game that frustrated me a little bit. But he was no different than anybody else. Just stringing, you know, stringing a few passes to get us into midfield and and up the pitch for every player seemed to be a problem. But I guess it, it all hits at the same time. So that was a frustration. I did, uh, you know, the one other positive. He didn't get much of a look in, but um, Obama Yang absolutely looks the part. I mean, there are times when he he takes that first few strides. We, he's totally Henri-esque, which, you know, has is a uh, comparison that's been made a lot. And there's nothing really to base it on so far at Arsenal. But there are times... Uh, you know, those offsides, you want to cry because, I mean, he is putting distance between him and his man. And if he gets ahead of the guy, A, he's not going to get reeled in. B, you feel he's going to finish with a classic Henri finish into that kind of the far curling far corner if he's just given half a chance and that you know that's our second biggest crime that we didn't get that guy off three four times in that game because he would you give him three chances he'd have scored one or two
1: yeah well and there's a part of a reason we didn't get him more chances is because we moved him out to the wing and tim i i want to come on to the changes i think that this is Mm. where you know i i have a more let's say irritable Twitter personality would irritable, would it be rash, Shh. explosive, irritable, Shh. uh, cynical, irritable. confrontational, uh, confrontational? uh um, blockable. How about that? <laughs> 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 um, yeah, I'm sort of a, an irritant, I guess you would say on social media, um, because it's, you know, it's the stream of consciousness stuff. It's the stuff you find yourself just thinking mm. and then putting out there into the, into the great digital wild. But I, I think yeah, where I, where I really struggled was when he moved to bombing out wide to, to, accommodate Lacazette coming on so just first of all firstly just the changes mm. in general how do you feel the manager did with his substitutions and how he deployed them
2: uh not that great to be honest um <laughs> <Fair> well enough <laughs> so um i'm mean, so on one hand like we, we were very very nearly we were, we're within a hair's breadth of it be setting up Lacazette for a last minute equalizer um, and would have all been saying what an inspired pair of changes that was. I um I, I was actually surprised when I saw, I thought we'd go three at the back, and when I saw it was four, if you'd have told me we were going to go four at the back and not start Iwobi, I would have been quite surprised, just in terms of trying to get a little bit of control in possession, particularly in the middle of the pitch. Um, although Iwobi didn't really do that when he came on, because... You know, he he was giving the ball away because he he just couldn't quite cope with the press. But that said, he did create that chance for Lacazette.
1: He did I mean, the opposite of what you expect from him. He, I thought he was really poor on the yeah, ball and didn't yeah. give us any solidity. But then he had the final ball.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's like the opposite of what he's actually been doing all season. And um, so, I. I do kind of so basically when Lacazette came on and before he missed uh, one, you know, half chance maybe, and, and one quite guilty chance, I wasn't massively like put out by, by putting Aubameyang on the wing, just because I, I actually thought Aubameyang looked quite dangerous when he got on the ball out there. It, it's not something I I think I'd do again, um, generally speaking, and I I, I just think. If you've got a player who's really low on confidence, like Lacazette, like sticking him out on the wing is, I, I can see why the manager would be reluctant to do that because that's where you build up players. That's you know, and if a guy's low on confidence, then you're just going to keep losing the ball. And I th- think Wenger probably just thought, well, you know what, if he gets through on goal, um, that, that, that's all I want him for, um, really, because you know his his confidence is so low at the moment. He's probably barely going to be able to. <laughs> Past, yeah, but why not two up front? Football, I mean, but,
1: you need you yeah, even yeah. one point probably isn't good enough there, and you could lose seven nil. No, yeah. It won't matter. I mean, why not just go two up front at that point?
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think that was more the mistake, um, to be honest, um, at, at that point. So, so I do think Young looked quite dangerous when he got on the ball on the left, though. Um, but also, I, I kind of tend to think that's just because there was space in behind that Tottenham defence. There really was. Um, I think it had been really interesting to have two of them running, particularly because, I mean, one of my problems with the substitutions, I, I didn't actually think Mkhitaryan played that badly. It was it was like a bit six out of ten. It, it wasn't that it was a great, it wasn't a good individual performance from him. But what I do think he his presence gave us was a bit of balance and then what happened when he came off was we fell back into that bad habit of leaving hector bellerin you know almost like airlifting him out of the stadium and like chucking him in the middle of middlesex or something (laughs) um for for like you know he might as well have been at white Hart lane at times when he had the ball like so far away were all his teammates but um you know, to be fair to him, he he dealt with that pretty well. Like, yeah, I mean that's a I tough situation. on the day,
1: I do feel yeah, like that yeah. Bellerin winds up in a lot of situations, not just in this game where he has the ball and the only passes he have he has to make are Mustafi or a nine out of ten degree of difficulty pass.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and so I think like with basically, I, I think you're right. I think we should have just gone to up front. Let's just have Lacazette and Aubameyang up front. They were Ozil behind them you know, let, let's not overcomplicate this. Let's make Tottenham worry. Um, we've got, you know, two strikers who like to run in behind and one of the best, if not the best, playmaker in the world who's great at finding through balls. And you've got Owobi and Wilshere uh, behind that as well, kind of buzzing around. And, you know, Wilshere hit a pretty good, uh, you know, I, I didn't think his performance was particularly great, but he hit... A, if that was his ball, wasn't it, for Abamyang in the first half, and yeah. you know, so you've got a, you've got a few guys there who can slip a through ball. Just put them both up front. I mean, it's not like we were playing Urzel on the left wing, so it's not like um, you know we had this like chalk on the boots presence out there that we really needed to replicate. So yeah, I, I do think that was a mistake. I like so I, I personally wouldn't have put Lacazette out wide, um, but. I I tend to agree. I think we should have just put them both up front and gone from there.
1: Yeah, so, well, let's come on to Lacazette then. So, look, I I usually see a player pile on and think, how how big a running start can I get before I can jump on top of this pile? But (laughs) I just don't feel that way in this case. I mean, Mm. it seems to me that because he missed a couple of chances, the narrative is he looks totally shot, his confidence is gone. All right, now look, Paul made a great point, and it's a point that I made on Twitter as well. The worst parts of his performance were the needless offsides calls. I mean, where he's looking right down mm-hmm. the line, he's in acres of space, and he's just standing a half yard offside. But with respect to those chances, I mean, one is a swiveling volley. Um, and I'm not saying that it's an impossible chance, but the optics of, of missing, miss hitting it make it look worse than it is. That's not a layup, you know? Um, and the other mm-hmm. one is a shot from the channel, it is a big chance, Louris closes the angle well, and he gets his angle wrong just a little bit. Unfortunately, doesn't get it wrong enough because if he misses a little more to the left, Aubameyang taps it in. But to me, in a game where we basically had no chances and no shots, our chances, you know, this guy comes on the pitch and he gets in positions to score and he just doesn't finish, and, and that does happen. Now, look, I'm not saying that makes him amazing. What I'm saying is, do you buy into the narrative that has developed after this game that he's shot, the confidence is gone, he's a ruined player. you could see it from this performance.
2: Um, I, so I think his confidence is clearly very low and uh, you know I don't usually like to go into intangibles but there, there are very there are a few examples over the years where so like I, I was actually so I was by that corner flag so I actually had um, a really good view of both of those chances. And it's one of those things that you you just can't explain. But you know when you know a player's going to miss, and I, I you know I've seen it a few times not not that often down the years, but there are a few times. Like I remember, like Giroud against Monaco, when he got about his fifth chance, and you're like, he's going to miss this. And um, I remember a few years ago, Bentner had an absolute nightmare against Burnley and missed about three or four chances. I do remember And that, then one, yes. and then one dropped. Him on the edge of the six yard box, and and, you know, you can't explain it, but just in that second, and you know, you're not just revising your opinion in hindsight, you know, in that second, you get he's going to miss. Like, I know he's going to miss, and um, I definitely felt that with the volley. And like you said, that's not an easy chance, that is a chance I expect him to do much better with, um, not necessarily score. But make the goalkeeper work there. I like yeah, I think I
1: mean Kane had a similar right volley that you know, when Kane's the best striker in the history of humanity and he hit hit it straight at check. You know, and granted that's a much better yeah, contact. Yeah, yeah. He hit it sweetly. I'm just saying yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's not a gimme.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, you know, I I think if Lacazette does that, I don't think anyone has any big problem. But it I, I can't explain I was I was absolutely in line with him when it dropped to him. And the second it dropped to him, I was just like this is going, along. maybe it was his stance or something, but I was like, this is not, I, I, I thought he would completely, he, in, he did move it. His I feet. was just like,
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: And, and so, that,
1: so no, cr- no credit for the, the being the guy that got into scoring positions when no one else had done that all day? Uh, no, I mean.
2: not on the first one because it was an absolute peach of a ball and he was just standing there and it came to him. The second one, yes, but, I I think with the second one, I think the first, I think his confidence is low anyway, and then he makes a real mess of that that volley. And I I think this kind of just goes back to what Clive's been saying for a few weeks. You know that Lacazette he, he's not a killer, you know. And we've we've talked about this a little bit that you look at not every top level striker, but most top level strikers have a bit of the rascal about them, you know. And I think Abamyang has that. You know, Omri could be a real prick um Nicolas Anelka um Adebayor Van Persie Jamie like Jamie Vardy you know D- Luis Suarez like these guys uh, and Alexis as well Alexis like they're bastards really but that's why they don't they don't have that self doubt you know like and and this is why um this is why uh, quite a lot of <laughs> quite sometimes quite stupid people get into power uh, mentioning no particular current examples i can think of because you know (laughs) like (laughs) because you know like stupid people don't doubt themselves whereas clever people do and um like with strikers it's not quite the same strike like you have to be a bit of a bastard i think (laughs) um or at least be a little bit away with the fairies you know a bit like theo walcott was so theo walcott was like a nice boy but you know i don't think he he thought about his mistakes too much. It was because he lives in Theo world. He was just barely in oh, well, contact with one... reality
1: at any given moment. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. It's like, Oh, well I'll put that one wide, but you know, TJ and his, his, his adventures will turn out differently next week. And, um, I, I think, I think Clive's quite right. I just, I just don't think Lacazette is, is that guy because even on the rare occasions that someone like, you know, an Ian Wright or a Van Percy goes four or five games without a goal, they don't have that kind of, oh, my God, he looks like he has the weight of the world on his shoulders. And, and, and Lacazette, he really does. He really looks like at the moment that he just has the absolute weight of the world on his shoulders. He looks like he's lying like on confidence, all of which I understand. But it, it does just make me think that Lacazette is basically a good striker, but not, not potentially a great one.
1: Um, you know, well, we've we've got to like, get him going. Is she rude? I mean, look, if we're going to win the Europa League, which is just yeah. about the only thing that matters anymore, unless you're going to really get your blood pumping over a Carabao Cup win, which I will. I'm not above that. But, uh, I mean, we need him. So would you start playing two up front? Would you start playing with Aubameyang? Would you do anything in your power to get him you know, pumping again because we need him for however long our Europa League uh, challenge is yeah. going to last?
2: Well, I, I, I said, I don't know how much difference this kind of thing makes. So I think I said on the last pod, you know, we talked about how does Lacazette feel seeing all of this fuss about Yang, And uh, I was quite surprised that Arsenal.com hadn't done like a couple of puff pieces about um, how good and important Lacazette is. Yes. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know the guy, so I don't know what makes him tick. But what is clear is that Wenger has got one hell of a man management situation um, on his hands here. Um, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know whether it's, you know, just stick him up front with a Bamiang and try and get him going, whether it's pouring honey in his ear, whether it's the carrot, whether it's the stick. I don't know what it is, but he he needs to do something and it's it's going to take all of his kind of know-how to manage this situation because Lacazette looks completely down in the dumps for whatever reason that is. Um, you're right, he's still a crucial player for us this season. And like you say, You might argue he's the most crucial player at the moment, given that, you know, he ostensibly holds the key to our Europa League hopes, which is a far more viable um, way back into the Champions League than the Premier League is at the moment. So I I don't know what it's going to take, but it's got to be something. Um, And, you know, Lacazette, you know, he scored against Palace the other week and it doesn't seem to have done anything for him. I, you know I don't know does he need a big goal does he just need to feel a bit more important is is there something that we just don't know about you know we don't know what goes on in these players lives um, it it is a it, long
4: time sort of since he's had read. any good service though isn't it well, when you think back the games
1: yeah i mean he he had service in it, this game <laughs> yeah um yeah. i mean so well here Clive real quick i mean any any kind of counter argument there on Lacazette or thoughts on on how we managed to get him going again
3: I think I've I've spoken about his dominance and maybe lack of physicality and especially since the Manchester United game, he just dropped away and I, I thought totally he hit a wall and he didn't play against Everton as I sort of predicted and he was rested completely and, and if, if if I sort of just look for crumbs of positivity, the way he moved on to that chance at the end, I have not seen him move like that for about two months. Right, and I felt he had a bit more explosion back. He was rested. <laughs> I mean, I just felt he had a bit more explosion back. I felt he moved on to that with real intensity. It actually surprised me he caught that pass. It surprised me he got on it because he hasn't been getting on to these things for a while. And he hasn't looked like finishing. I know exactly what Tim's talking about. You just got no confidence in him to execute. I totally agree on the on the high volley. He, he was a little bit I think if that goes in I'll be surprised. On the second one, the way he moved on to it, I was encouraged. And I think there's a positive in there somewhere, if we can get around him. So if you have got a player like that and we've all given him given this our psychological profile of him, the first thing you do is say, okay, rather than isolate him, just play him up front with someone else. Just give him bodies around him. Go forward, diamond two, have Ozil in behind him, have three be- behind him in a in a V, and just create a diamond and have two up front. And on that chance, it would have been a square pass because Ford wouldn't have been running from the left wing. It's just simple things like that that really annoy me about the manager not recognising the players it has under his staff. This is an obvious move, I think they could play together. I just think when we're 1-0 down, that's a f- we should have a game plan, and we should flip to that. And then all we had to do in this game was speed up our team, take out the slowest people, start to get some speed onto the pitch, drop that jack in front of the back four, Iwobi, Mikatarian, Ozil, and two up top. Keep the speed, keep the agility, and make Tottenham think, because they are not great at 1-0 late in games. And I, and I just think it's just a shame. And like I said, we've got to stay with him. He is
1: incredibly important to us. And, Not to um, mention to we spent fans... £55 million pounds on him, oh, by the way, just six months ago.
3: Yeah, and, and well, there's some stuff on that. I know it's we shouldn't talk about it, right? But it's just some, some terribly cruel stuff that goes from fans to our players well that's society man
1: i'm not gonna I, we don't need to get into it but i i think anyone who oh. thinks that's unique to arsenal is fooling themselves i mean it yeah, happens maybe, to, maybe. to athletes in every sport and every team it happens to actors it happens to, i mean if you are a public facing person that stuff is happening to you it's just reality people
5: maybe are, it's uh, my well, yeah
3: maybe it's my naivety in well. That i wish we would be different as arsenal people but we're just not and it's um I, I can't help but find it disappointing.
4: But hey. We're working on it, Clive. We're yeah, look, working on it.
1: Look, so, all right. Well, Paul, he, here's here's a question. I'm Well, let's back up just for a minute before I get to the meta stuff because I, I do think there's a couple final questions just sort of where we stand now and, and the meta questions. But in terms of, of system for this game and sort of what we've seen, we started the season committed to the back three. We were going to play that way. Hell, we signed a left wing back from the Bundesliga team of the season who we don't think can play fullback. He's a wingback because we're a back three team. Even in the Europa League and the Cap- Carabao Cup, where we didn't necessarily have the personnel, we stuck with the back three because we're a back three team. And Arson wavered, and he went to a back four, and he played the four two three one, and then he switched to a back three mid game, and then he played a four four a four one four one, and then we we have gotten to a point now where the the, the official account no longer tweets out the lineups with a picture because they have no fucking idea where these guys are playing. Um, The social media guys like shrug emoji uh, beats the shit out of me. Is there, is there a possibility here that we have run into such a, a big problem now because not only has there been a decent amount of player turnover, but you know, and look, I will raise my hand and say I've criticized Arson in the past for being too tactically rigid. But right now is the thinking <laughs> so muddied. Is he is he scrambling for an answer in so many directions that he he has confused even himself and his own team in terms of how we play now?
4: Um, look, there's a very good case for that. But I'm going to live in, in that other parallel universe where when you're lo- tactically confused, when you're winning, you're a genius. Yeah, uh, that's you know flexibility in the two ties with Chelsea and one, and he was a genius. You know, Elneny dropping in the two centre-backs was a masterstroke. I think, you know, when we say we started off committed to the three at the back, I get that. But I also remember us all having conversations about how we didn't think he'd stick with three for the whole season, that he'd start going back to four at the back when he was more confident to the team. And when you see Sammy Yang and Emmer, uh, sorry, <laughs> Yang and uh, Mikitarian, and you want to play them and Ozil, um, there's a very good chance you'll want to play, you know, he's going to want to play Ramsey.
1: But uh, isn't that just the three, the three, four, two, one we were playing, right? I mean, except it's, it's Mikatarian and Ozil behind Aubameyang. It's Ramsey and Shaka in midfield. It's Kalasinach and Bellerin at the wing backs. And it's, it's this, the three center backs that Nacho tucks into. And I mean, I'm not saying that makes us a league champion, but it's the least amount of substantive change to incorporate those pieces
4: you you obviously you can accommodate them in a 3-4-3 but when you get players like that it's because you're actually planning to play Wenger ball um, you get a three like that uh, we've had some reasonable ex- success recently with it at midfield i can understand why he wanted to go that way to get the first goal in this game um, you know we we talked about previous game against spurs has been a masterclass you know the first goal is off a uh, corner, if I remember right, was that Kishelny scored? Or anyway, we first goal, I think, is a, a cross a there. um as I looked at that game back, you know, what we, well was we counter pretty well, we had some passes together. There's no reason that sh- couldn't have worked here. So while I feel you, you know, it, I do think it's massively colored by did you win or did you lose.
1: Well, right, but but I, I'm not saying necessarily specific to this game, but more in the context of like, are we running into problems game to game, and in terms of building any form and developing any form in terms of our off the ball play and and defensively because uh, yeah. we are because we are chopping and changing so much, not in terms of just the the people, but uh, where I, they're positioned get, on the pitch. Yeah.
4: But I think we've made that transition now, and if you look at what the youth teams are doing, they've switched three at the back to four at the back. I think we've flipped the switch and we've gone back to three at the back once or twice uh, because it works against Chelsea and we shouldn't confuse ourselves too much. I think we're now at four at the back. T- yeah. Uh, you know, the Kolasinac discussion, I get that. I I don't think we bought him just as a wing back. I think that's a bit like the Chaka. Arson's still trying to work out what he had. Halfway through, isn't he's like a wing fullback? He was a fullback. Uh, so I'd be uh, if he really bought him. Thinking he can own,
1: yeah. It's gone a little. Gr- it's gone a little gremlin. Paul, uh, unfortunately, yeah. from an internet standpoint. So okay. th- the genius of your answer is is only being uh, periodically picked up here. So i in
3: there, Paul. I've been there, mate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> can, 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 can you do me a favor? Could you could you leave Clive's house and go back to yours? Do the, do the podcast yeah. in there, no um, problem. Tim. <clears throat> I want to get to a couple of sort of now uh, final meta issues about the season and about where we go from here. But I want to give you a quick shot at that as well. That topic, just in terms of this time last season, as we started to hit our low ebb, which I think. Uh, culminated in the loss to palace the three no loss to palace if i remember correctly right Mm. before we started the back three um it felt like arson was searching for the answers and i think you said on this podcast and in writing that he just no longer looked like he had the answer and the back three was sort of Mm. the last thing he tried do you feel a similar thing happening now in terms of the number of different tactical approaches we've tried and do you think it's hurting more than helping
2: yeah yeah definitely because we're just doing like something very different in every game and in, in on one you know as you kind of already alluded to in one aspect that's maybe a little bit enthusing <laughs> compared to when we just always used to do the same thing but now i don't know it doesn't look like tactical flexibility to me it, it just looks like thrashing around for a bit of an answer um i mean that said we obviously had a plan for this game because four-one-four-one is is not a shape we've used too often this season so he he obviously developed some kind of game plan for this match uh, for for better or for worse and like i said earlier the fact that he was so annoyed by the final ball on the counter attack suggested that that's that's really what he wanted to do and that he had a very specific plan for this game but the the problem is i don't know if the i don't know if it's cuz the players confused or cuz they don't really believe in what they're being told or the instructions aren't clear i d- i don't really know but it just it just doesn't really look convincing and particularly away from home um you know the it's not just this season our away record's been pretty bad for over a year can, now can
1: can i can i give the statistics and, um, the last last yeah, 20 yeah, go for it. last 26 thanks to orbinio for tweeting this out last 26 premier league away games 26 won seven, drawn 5 yeah. lost 14 Scored 35, yeah. conceded 45, 45 in 26 games, and we have 26 out of a possible 78 points.
3: Yeah. Wow. So I'll give you that yeah, statistic. I mean,
1: yeah. Go for it. Tim
3: has, been, Tim has been to every one of those.
1: <laughs> Fuck me. It's depressing when you put it that yeah. way. All right, Tim, fire away. Keep going. Um,
2: true but i was also all 49 games in the unbeaten run so you know karma um maybe reverse karma there
1: still dining out on that
2: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and i'll continue to do so um but yeah like with the away you know with the away form in particular it just doesn't look like well it doesn't look like he hasn't found an answer and it just looks to me like he's kind of just kind of grabbing at things um and just really hoping that something will work and and so in you know on the face of it losing one nil away at Tottenham is not you know this isn't this doesn't show you you know all of the problems because most teams lose away at Tottenham now um unfortunately they're a really good team and albeit one nil flattered us on the day but um you know they they steamrolled United they steamrolled Liverpool they steamrolled Real Madrid at home as well so I mean, this this doesn't tell you like this isn't like the problem with us away from home. The problem with us away from home is West Brom and Southampton and Watford and Bournemouth and and Swansea and those games. Most most of them in which we've taken the lead in, which which is even more bizarre. Um, it it just looks like basically our away form baffles everybody, Arsene danger included, and. He's tried different formations, different players, different combinations, and none of it's working. And, you know, um, it's, it's quite amazing that he's not paying with his job, but um, here we are
1: yeah i mean the when you read out the away form and you consider that we've conceded 46 goals in 26 away matches and we're minus 10 goal difference and we have twenty twenty six 26 points or whatever it is as i butcher that statistic i mean it's really hard to think of any manager who would keep their job under those circumstances that's that's not big club performance i mean that is relegation form it really genuinely is i don't even mean that hyperbolically um but you know, and Tim the the thing I don't understand, you know, we we heard from Arson in preseason even the idea that Elneny could be a center back. This isn't you know, this isn't something that he never referenced. And so maybe he sees the four one four one as being able to be four one four one in possession, more of a back three out of possession or however he sees it. Mm-hmm. But yet I mean if you said to me what is the role of that central most defensive player, I would say they have to be an exceptional line-breaking passer, right? They have to be able to collect the ball and give it up the pitch. And Elneny is the most conservative passer in our team, arguably. Um, So, you know, why is he right for that position? Is he that good a tackler? Is he that good positionally off the ball? Does that overcompensate for his exceptionally conservative passing? You know, I would love to really dig in with Arsene and say, why do you feel that that's a fit for that position? When, arguably, Mustafi, who was playing as his center, most center back in the back three is the line breaking passer that we that yeah, yeah. need in that position. So I, I don't know. You know, even when you look at it, Tim, and say there was clearly a plan, you still have to wonder if the plan suits the personnel, which yeah yeah absolutely. you know I mean I think is a, a fair ask, and um, I mean I I just don't know. How he how he reconciles all that, um, and Paul's typing out that yeah. Arson did say that he would not be used in a three at the back. And I, Paul, while I agree with that, I think putting him as the one between the lines in a back four is roughly similar. You know what I mean, mm. right? Like, yeah. like if uh, you're gonna play four one say, four say, one. Uh, you,
4: I agree with your personnel thing. I don't think he has the players he now needs. I mean, he, you can see his frustration with Mustafi playing out from the back. So uh, I think around the pitch. He he has a mixed bag of players. He hasn't, to your point, he hasn't really picked on a way of playing, and he doesn't really have the players for either way of playing. So he's he's caught between two stools.
1: Yeah, and and the players he's brought in, you know, he brought in a Granite Chaka who doesn't seem to fit the role that he thought he was going to play, and now he's kind of trying to figure out how to deploy him. And he brought in a, a um, Kolasinac who. I couldn't even remember his name because he's that far from being part of the Arsenal squad at this point. Um, so he, he has these personnel issues, and he's not solving them the way he maybe needed to. So, uh, Clive, a quick final word about coaching, and then I want to I do a quick whip around on all of your thoughts on the, where the season goes from here and hopefully be out of here in the next 10 minutes, at most. Okay.
3: Uh, I just think, as, as a coach, the Major's got a job to do, and and top level football is very I would agree with stressful. that.
1: I think we would all agree <laughs> with that, Clive. The manager top, has top, a job to do. Yes. He
3: has a job to do, right? Top level football is very stressful. It's obviously that our players don't look comfortable away from home at the moment. So it's his job to find a system, to find a way of playing that makes more players feel comfortable than, than not. And I feel, agree with him 100%. It doesn't feel like he's doing something to ease those pressures on individuals, it feels as though he's actually moving things around in a haphazard way that's actually adding stress to people. And I and I sense a lack of belief in 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 the in the game plan. For me, the most secure I feel is when we go three at the back away from home. I felt it for a while. Our best run of away results have come with three at the back. The way we were dominated in the air yesterday really concerned me. I would like a lot more physicality away from home. We need to dominate. We need to make people recognise that we won't be dominated. We won't be encouraging teams on. And I just think he's he's getting away from that. But I think it's something that's ingrained in Arsenal people. We always think about what happens on the ball. Whenever we try to select a player, judge a player... we always think about what they do on the ball and we need to wake up to the game. The game is two-way and the game is becoming a lot more about off the ball and I just don't think we're getting it as a club. And even some of our favourite players, their main strengths are on the ball. Our our, our two superstars versus Everton who didn't get on the ball yesterday were, were, were not that great yesterday, you know? And it's like we have this a lot and I think he has to... Get a system that makes more people feel comfortable. Very simple. Away from home, three at the back, win backs higher. At home, it doesn't matter so much. We've got a lot of confidence at home. We feel emotionally secure. Go four at the back at home. And top six games, I would prefer to have a lot more defensive security in top six games, so I would prefer the three. Because if I are defensively secure... We do create moments where we can score. But let's be honest, we are weak in both boxes. Our defensive security is weak. And I I wish I had the numbers in my head about goals scored. I wonder how many goals we are behind Man City and all our top six Well, forget
1: Man City, but here's the point, right? I mean, we are known as an attacking team. And so, you know, it's like there's this narrative that we're an attacking team, so we're going to concede a bit, but we're an attacking team. Well, here's the stark reality, okay? Liverpool are an attacking team. They have the second most goals scored in the league and the fifth most conceded of the top six. Okay, That's an attacking team. That's an example of a team that has deficiencies at the back that they try to cover for by scoring goals. Arsenal have the fifth most goals scored of the top six, but the sixth most goals allowed. So we are the worst defensive team in the top six, and our supposed attacking philosophy nets us fifth out of six. So we aren't an attacking team, we're just a mess. And that's that's the reality. At least yeah. in the league, we're just a mess. So Paul, with this done and with with the league, I, I think we have to say top four is gone. I mean, by the yeah. time we play another league match, we could be eleven points adrift, granted with a game in hand. How do we approach the rest of the season? I mean, it is sad if you think about it. Obamayang comes in for sixty million euros, and I'm not saying he's a waste because he's 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 certainly not. I mean, I'm thrilled to have him and next season he could lead us to the title, but He's got 11 games left to play that are really of no consequence whatsoever. What is our priority in the league now? I mean, other than obviously go out and try to win every game. I mean, are we rotating now for for the Europa League? Are we trying to work Lacazette back in to get him confident for the Europa League? How would you approach what really is now a tricky run-in in the league because it it's kind of going to peter out?
4: Yeah, look, it's a, it's, a ter- it's a terrible situation. I mean, uh, fucked if I know what the answer is, because c- we're that distance away. The only the only good point is we're not so far away that it's completely ludicrous, but it's it's one notch away from completely ludicrous that we would make top four. So, yeah, it's going to be a bit embarrassing for the lads playing for the rest of the season, kind of going through the motions. Obama gang showing up and our season already being over kind of thing. Uh, which makes each game that little bit hollow. So I think they've got to find a way of talking themselves into the fact that they could still get into the top four, at least for as long as they can string it out among themselves, that that's what everybody buys into. Um, I think you raised a good point about if we're going to get Lacazette mentally up to where he needs to be, maybe what we should try and do for the rest of the season is find ways to, to... play two up top for a lot of the games and find some formulation that allows them to play together and for Lacazette to get some of the the heat back into his game. At least give him starts
1: at home against smaller clubs or something so he can get a goal or two feel good about himself, you know? Yeah.
4: Yeah. And I, I do think there's merit to the idea. It's been a long time since he's had a game where he's got good service. I mean, it is. It's probably as long as the time since he's been on some kind of scoring run. I mean, if you think back to the games, it's not like he had a game where he had lots of chances and didn't score. Uh, They're all games we struggled to create. So um, while he may be a bit down in the dumps at the moment, uh, he is technically uh, a very clean player and a clean finisher. Um, It might be something that resolves itself quickly if he can get some supply, but... Uh, the idea, you know, if our season comes down to the Carabao Cup, well, um, he he may not be starting for that because we'll need to get Obama Yang uh, playing and doing something meaningful for the club or he's going to be yeah. twiddling his t- thumbs. So that's basically Lacazette assigned to the Europa League. And we kind of got to get the, the only thing about the Europa League is it, it doesn't a we're going to play a a weak team touch wood for the next two legs and european football is a little different and it's it it, it's a little more measured so unless we run into dortmund real quick we're going to have the kind of game where maybe our midfield isn't overrun and we can start to play some proper football and and create chances for lacazette that he can have a go at so it might just have a little feel for a couple of rounds here before it gets really serious Mm -hmm. um and he can play himself into some kind of form because wh- where he goes, there go with our season. It seems.
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that is the case. I mean, so Tim, I want to finish with you other with, with with two quick questions. I mean, first of all, given our situation in the league, and just to put it in a perspective, we are five points back of Chelsea, who play tomorrow, so it mm. could be eight. We are seven points back of Spurs uh, in fourth, so that you know, seven and a half if you want to count goal difference. It's essentially an eight-point gap to make up to make it. It's unlikely. We don't play again until mm. March 1st in the league, and that's against Man mm. City. Now, that's at the Emirates, but even a draw there could see us double-digits points back of fourth place by the time that game mm. is over. Um, does the manager have to take Ostersoons away this Thursday a lot more seriously than he might have liked, given that... Mm. We cannot countenance going out of the Europa League at this stage.
2: Yeah, yeah, he absolutely does, and and actually, I th- I think he would have anyway, just because of the way the calendar works. Because we're out the FA Cup, so we've got no game at the weekend. No game um, between the two legs. And, it's kind of um, weird. Yeah, yeah, and then after the second leg, you know, immediately after the second leg, we've got the Carabao Cup final. So it strikes me that it makes. it... I mean, if I, we're at the stage now where we should just be playing our first team anyway. Um, what else are they doing <laughs> uh, in the Europa, Yeah, exactly. But also, I think, I, in an ideal world, I think Arsenal will put out, you know, his his strongest team for the Austin's first leg, and his hope will be to win it by enough goals that he can perhaps um, not take the second leg less seriously, but doctor his his team selection for the second leg so that we can be ready for the Carabao Cup final.
1: Yeah, I mean. <laughs> The funny thing is you've got a weird situation in the Carabao Cup final because you've got Manchester City who lead the league who probably don't have to worry about their midweek match against Arsenal because they've got the league wrapped up. And Arsenal, who play Manchester City, who don't have to worry about their midweek match against City because (laughs) they're totally out of the top four race. So you'll have two teams that can really afford to focus on the the Carabao Cup final. And the only Mm -hmm. argument is that City, I think, will have Champions League games to worry about, and hopefully we will have done the business against Ostersunds. So the last question I want to ask you, Tim, is is a loaded one, and it's simply this. Whenever I have suggested that it's time to replace Arsene Wenger, it has come down to basically the defense being, be careful what you wish for, right? You know, oh, well, look, look at what happened to United after Sir Alex Ferguson, or look at Liverpool and all the years they spent adrift. Arsene Wenger has this team rooted to sixth place. The team behind us is Burnley. Is there some manager mm. we're going to get that's going to have us fall behind Burnley who are on 35 points or whatever <laughs> it is? I guess my argument is, have we reached the point, at least with respect to the league, where there is there is no boogeyman around the corner now, if it's not arson, that really any change is change that we should embrace and be ready for?
2: Yeah, pretty much. Within like the subset of the top six and, you know all the managers that would be likely to take a, a top six job, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, Man U went for David Moyes and finished seventh. Um, so, you know, it, it can get worse, but not much. But I think if you accept that the top six is locked and that basically the absolute worst Arsenal can and should be doing is six and, you know, cut a drift from the other five, I, that's where we are at the moment. Uh, it's very much where we're headed. Uh, yeah, because it's uh, and not then, just you know, sixth, it's like we're at,
1: in our own class in sixth. Yeah,
2: <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. We're kind of out on our own in sixth. And, and then if you take in the sphere of, you know, realistic managers, so obviously if you get, like, the manager of a League Two club to come in, then, yeah, we'd probably drop out of the top six. Um, but, you know, like... Yeah, like so. So if we're we're operating a little bit in the real world and within those confines, then it would be difficult to do a worse job than Arsene Banger is doing um, at the moment. It's difficult to imagine anyone would, you know, make our away form any worse. Um, well, and also, what about within the yeah. con-
1: what, what about within the context of the fact that the new manager will be operating where there kind of is a director of football, a new chief scout, yeah, you know, yeah, a more yeah. a more active. Um, you know Ivan Gazidis in the sense that he won't be taking over for Arsene Wenger vis-a-vis doing every single thing at the club.
2: Yeah, but that also I I, I do think we, you know, and, and I'm not going into the be careful what you wish for territory because e- even if I one percent of me felt that Arsene Wenger should stay, we we have to broach this at some point anyway. But I I think Man U's trouble show you that replacing a legacy manager is, is not simple um regardless of how they're performing in the, in this particular time it makes it slightly easier for them um that Arsene Wenger is kind of underperforming but it it's still difficult it's still I think um a bit of a shock and I still think that after it happens that we might be in for a slightly rocky season or two um, unfortunately that's exactly what we're having at the moment anyway so You know, we really should have done this a couple of years ago and then, you know, have those couple of rocky seasons and then kind of get back on track, which is what United seem to be doing. We've already entered that phase where we're trying to spend our way back in um, with some of the moves we've made in the transfer market. So we've already kind of thrown off the class and all. Um, We don't buy them, we make them, you know, fairly kind of. Slightly supercilious uh, kind of stuff that we've been putting out over the last decade to defend the fact that we weren't really competing like we've we've done away with that pretty sharpish uh, to try and get our way back into the Champions League. So we've already entered. Basically, we're already in the post arson funk. It's just he's still fucking here. Yeah. Um, and I think we're going to have a bit of a post arson funk for maybe two seasons after he goes. And so the quicker we just get ourselves through that the better and um I I wish Arson was I, I wish I wish the club and the future of you know the short to medium term future of the club mattered to Arson as much as his addiction to this job because he's a smart man he can't believe that he's doing a good job he can't actually believe that he's that he that he can turn this round and he can't actually believe that he's the best man for the job but and and I don't I can't see how he's enjoying this at all but I think he's he's just scared of what comes next and that and so he's clinging on and um unfortunately we all have to sit here and wait until um until someone moves him because on honestly I I think if we offered him another contract he'd sign it without a doubt yeah. he will he will keep if it's on offer, he will keep that job until his dying day.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with you. And I mean, look, I get that City have all the money in the world and they can buy players we can't get. And I get all of that and they're running away with the league. But you can't look up at Pep Guardiola and the job he's doing there and not recognize it. There's just a different brand of football now that's being taught and being trained and being coached and being played. And it's, he's just not at and that level at, right now.
2: But, you know, if you want, like... So before we were like a bit stagnant. Now it's a really sharp decline. I saw a tweet yesterday saying we thought last season was terrible. This time last season, we were something like 10 points off the top, still in the FA Cup, still in the Champions League, albeit not for much longer, having topped our group. And, you know, now we're out of the cup. We're in the Europa League We're twenty 26 points back, you know. This is like, so we're used to being out of the title race by February. We're out of the top four race in February. That's how, that's the, you know, this is a managed decline.
1: um, So it's not going well. What are saying? Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Uh, Clive, final thoughts on sort of the next phase and, and, and where we are with that. Your big, your big moment, Clive. Don't blow it. Are you there at all? specifically asked to have a shot at this question and now you're just going to stonewall me? Is that your point? Is that the joke? Is this like, are we doing performance art?
3: Oh, sorry. I was on mute. So basically,
1: (laughs) I was talking away there. Way to get the big moment.
3: I was talking away there and said, don't worry, I won't blow it. I won't blow it. Basically, he's already gone. For many people, he's already gone. When Fergie left, there was like a crescendo moment. He'd uh, he'd overspent on certain players to have his final moment in the sun. He got his stand named after him. And and, and David Gilway at the same time. And Manchester United had to rebuild from within the club and outward. right? So um, Fergie's behest and he got that wrong. And then suddenly they got Mourinho in and they decided to rebuild in the back room and then go from there. We've already rebuilt in the back room. And many of, the, many of the fans have already given up on the manager. So I don't think we're going to have a, a, a two, three-year funk. I think the club will massively go forward the moment he walks away. Because many, many fans that have disengaged no longer go, no longer care in the same way, or quietly sit in the background waiting for change, waiting for something to happen, waiting to get re are sitting there quietly, just ready and waiting. And there are many, many... Pr- Agents, people in the background waiting for Arsenal to, to open its doors to the rest of the league to say they are coming back, they're ready to build again. And the moment that happens, I, I'm really positive, I think we're going to explode. I always say we're a sleeping giant. And I think I'm not worried about the main nights now, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah.
1: No, I think that's a good we point. will
3: I think we will react immediately. And then it's down to the bounce the ball and, and the, how green the grass is, right? And that's just football. Yeah we But I'm not I'm not concerned. I think we are good. Once we do decide to do change, I think we'll do it properly. And I think we're well on the way and just, just just hope it happens this summer because I think I just can't take another year of
1: this. No, I, I and you know, you make a really good point because we have a world class recruitment and talent spotting guy in Sven and a world-class contract negotiating director of football style guy in Raul and we have some huge talent some big stars to attract other stars we've got London we've got this great stadium um, we can pay top wages as we've proven with Ozil we've tied our you know we've nailed our colors to the mast with him and and if we can just get a great first team coach in he doesn't have to do all the stuff he doesn't have to worry about the 300 staff he's got to pay the hourly wage to and you know worry about the janitorial systems they just got to coach the first team and i think that that is that is entirely possible plus the guy who's replacing him will be coming off a long period of mediocrity in the league at a minimum so we won't have the shadow of of arson hanging over him in the same way that fergie did winning the title on his way out the door i think those are all really good points i think look we're gonna leave it here but the interesting thing is between now and the next league game we could be into the last 16 and we could have hoisted a trophy. That could totally change the mood around the club and give us a really exciting push towards the end. Alternatively, we could shit the bed like we did against Monaco, get hammered by City, have nothing to play for in the league, and I don't know that Arson can make it to the end of the season under those circumstances. So I don't think that'll happen, but it'll be very interesting. I think the next 14 days at Arsenal are going to determine a massive amount of what happens for the next five months or so and then beyond. So our fingers crossed that... that it doesn't have to be a low moment till May because I don't think any of us want to deal with that. In any event, Tim's on Twitter at Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure. Yep, pleasure's mine. My, uh, my friend Paul is on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Thanks, Pause. Woohoo. Clive's on Twitter at Clive P A F C. Unmute yourself to say goodbye, Clive thank you very much yeah there you go that worked my name is Elliot Smith block me on Twitter Yankee Gunner hey give us a five star review I am reliably informed that that does something for us I don't know what it is um, but it does the stuff that apparently we want done in any event please do it and write nasty things about Scott who uh, did not make himself available today to give us all the great statistical rundown of how we shut the bed in any event I can finally do my close and have a shot for it to happen so here we go we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10 Ostersund's nil.